How many five-year-olds do you think you could take in a fight? That's the question that we strive to answer on America's most Freudian podcast, The Pod People. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and I got too much shit on me. How many five-year-olds do you think you could take in a fight? At least six. Okay, okay. Um, I'm Ben Sheets, a uh, child of rage. How many five-year-olds <laughs> do you think you could I, take in a fight? I, you know, I could probably take about eight. Do you think you could take eight? Oh, yeah. It's a lot. I can definitely take more five-year-olds than you can. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll see. He <laughs> probably can, if I'm being honest. Like, I mean, yeah. He's yeah. a powerful man. He's a big guy. Um, hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, a.k.a. Honey Brood Boo. And, <laughs> um, How many five-year-olds do you think you could take in a fight? About the same. About you know, five or six. Yeah, I mean, I think... Past that, like, it's just too much to track. Yeah, they start getting underfoot, mm-hmm. and you lose the advantage if you get on the ground. Yeah, they're it's ground all about game. crowd control. Yeah, honestly, they're lower center of gravity. That's true, and they, and five year like they don't have much strength, but their uh, advantage is in their ground game. Mm-hmm. Um, although now that I say that, I think if I put a five year old in a Kimura clutch, I don't think there's much he's going to be able to do yeah, about that. that. One, but yeah, what about their the other arms, four? like twigs? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, hmm, that's you know when it comes to like orders of probability, like you start getting slipping past five. That's where it gets too hard to track everything. Too many the variables. Five year olds though is you hit them a couple times, they start crying, and then they're they're done. Well, like so they're yeah. not gonna fight you when they're five year olds go down very easily. Yeah, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, unless they're like weird rage five year olds, but we'll get into that. Um, but I, I think really the 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 main tactic for taking them on, of course, is picking up one and using it as a as weapon. a weapon, yeah. as always. When, swing around in any in any scenario where you're fighting a multitude of smaller creatures, that's always the strategy. Pick strat, up one is to use one of them as a weapon. Yeah, mm-hmm. grab a five that five year old by his ankles and start slinging around in a tornado. Do the fucking uh, what's the wrestler's name? Cesaro. Oh, Cesaro. Yeah, oh, yes. His whole uh, move is yeah. swinging people. Oh, yeah, around. swinging people around. What, yeah, like what's his pizza? What's his name now that he's in AEW? Uh, it's something. It's I think he uses his real name. He's like Claudio now. Yeah, or something. yeah. Which is uh, the Iron Claudio. The Iron Claudio. <laughs> also a funny wrestler name. What are we doing here? We're to here. To, we're here to talk about a movie. A movie that Cleveland chose for us. And we're really going to be brooding about it. Yes, yes, indeed. We're here to brood over David Cronenberg's The Brood from 1979. Another Cronen first for you, Clave. Hell yeah, baby. I had to. I, I'm, I'm trying to get through all of these. I'm trying to approach each of my picks. I just, I feel like if I die, there'll be a couple of films I will have lamented not seeing. Not that I would know I'd be dead. I wouldn't really yeah. matter anymore, but... Spiritually, I, I think it's it's important to fulfill that. You're filling in. You're filling in gaps. Yeah, I'm not picking garbage. I'm not picking, you know, like not that you're things. aware of. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I'm trying to pick you films I haven't seen before that I feel like I should to culture myself, to educate myself, and to further crawl out from under this rock I've been crawling out through over the over the years of this podcast. So we did the brood. Cause, yeah, because Cronenberg. You've got a you've got I'm a decent a you've got a decent amount of Cronenberg under your belt now. Yeah, yeah. At this point. yeah you're 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 it's catching up. I I don't think I've seen that many more than you have at this point. No. Um, at least in terms of his like straight horror stuff. I think the only ones we haven't covered on the show are like scanners. 
Scanners, Shivers, and uh, I haven't seen Rabid. Scanners, Shivers, and The Dead Zone are the only horror ones. Yeah, that, I was about to ask if Crash would seen. count. Crash oh, Crash. Yes, movie. absolutely. Yeah. Crash. Yeah. Forgot about Crash. I have yeah. seen all of his movies, actually. Wow. Including Crash. Yes. Uh, I mean, Crash whips ass, but... Yeah, great director. You know. How did you like The Brood, Cleveland? Oh, I loved it. It was exactly what I was really hoping for. We had this conversation over, uh, what's a video drum? How, I don't know, I, I went into it with a certain expectation, and I wasn't sure, you know, how it fulfilled it. Given time to process it, coming less hot off of Videodrome, I think Videodrome is exactly what it should be, and I really love it. Um, but uh, with The Brood, I'm coming off of it thinking, it's a Cronenberg movie called The Brood. It had everything in it I wanted. Everything I would expect it to have, and I was quite pleased. I'm revolted, I'm reeling, I'm pondering, uh, and I think it's going to... I'm going to keep thinking about this movie for a good while. Um, I think, you know, like, before I fall asleep tonight, I'm just probably just going to, like, kind of just be... What's the term? Mulling over it. Brood, sure. Brooding, brooding you will. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, well, your Cronenberg journey has been interesting. Crimes of the Future was your first no, or no, second? No, no, no. I saw The Fly years ago. Okay, um, so your second mm-hmm. after The Fly. Yeah, well, no, I saw... What's the the uh, the one with uh, Vigo... Uh, that's not a horror film. Oh, uh, uh, History of Violence. History of Violence. Okay. Yeah, so okay. History of Violence okay. as well. Um, banger. God, what a great movie. Yeah. Um, Honestly, maybe my favorite. Mm-hmm. That and Eastern Promises. Much different movies than the rest of his oeuvre. But... That's the thing. Yeah, there's still... It seems like, yeah, there's still a lot of Cronenbergs that I, I need to watch, I feel. This is one of his earliest ones chronologically that we've covered because this is before The Fly, before Videodrome, before Dead Ringers, um, before all of that. Um, and I feel like you can sort of, like, see a lot of the places where his career goes after this one. I love watching Cronenberg stuff because I feel like there's, like, always a clear progression throughout his career and the kinds of themes that he is exploring and re-exploring. And I think his earlier stuff, Scanners included, uh, tends to be a little bit more straightforward in terms of the plot like, this is way more straightforward than something like Videodrome. Sure, yeah. Um, um, still very clinical. And, yes. You know, mm-hmm. detached and kind of brooding and slow. Yes. Um, I had to look something up at the end of this movie because spiritually I felt it, and I was so glad to have it confirmed when I looked it up. At the time that Cronenberg was making this, he was going through a messy divorce. Uh, you don't say. Yeah. <laughs> Spiritually, I felt it through you the whole movie. You don't fucking say. But, yeah, it's just like how when you watch Eraserhead, you can really feel that David Lynch is working out a lot of his issues with like new fatherhood, being a very young man, having just had his first child. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this movie, you can you can really tell that cronenberg was uh dealing with some shit <laughs> some baggage with his bitch wife <laughs> am i right guys am i right am i right fellas <laughs> yeah so the the movie uh kind of broadly is uh is about a broodly bro- <laughs> a broodly <laughs> it is canadian <laughs> yeah hey. a, bro- a broodly there um <laughs> 
Yeah, so we've we've got a couple that is uh, obviously going through uh, some kind of uh, rough patch, and the wife is undergoing a uh, sort of experimental psychotherapy uh, at this special institute way out in the wilderness uh, overseen by Dr. Ragland, played by the legendary Oliver Reed, who's very good in this. Um who uh, who practices the the science of psychoplasmics? It's that classic Cronenberg, like vaguely medical, uh, scientific uh, fiction. Yes, which there, is really interesting. There's an evil um, organization. Classic Cronenberg theme of a cult of personality centered around a weird pseudoscience. Yeah, what do y'all think about like the opening scene where they introduce? Like, his practice of psychoplasmics, where it's almost shot like a theater performance. It's, I thought it was, at first. Um, I thought it was vile, in all the right ways. Uh, it really eked me, uh, gave me the, the, the yeeky, yeeky beekies, the yeah. beebies. Uh, the, all the Yeah, all the bits where, like, he starts, like, playing the role of his of his father, and, like, the, the way that they play with... Um, gender in that scene is uh very very uncomfortable um and it just yeah this like this grown man calling like another grown man daddy and uh, you know with him almost like in this trans state of like this transitory sonambolic almost state uh dreamlike almost childlike you know like saying that to his dad is freaky and, and gross and, and of course it's revealed that like this this character as he can, sort of keeps changing his roles to reflect the dialogue he's trying to break through to this patient you know we we learn that's the doctor himself yeah it's like a confrontation therapy kind of thing where the doctor plays the role of somebody in the patient's life who is a source of some trauma or some kind of hang-up uh and they do it while uh, sitting facing each other wearing karate geese. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a spiritual battle. Yeah, right. You know, or a, or a, or a, a mental one, a, a metaphysical. Yeah, he's basically, he's basically just negging him until he has, until uh, the, the patient achieves some sort of uh, emotional release. Um, well, and in this case, like, forces him, uh, and this is where you kind of get the sense that there's, you know, something about, like, what's different about psychoplasmics is that, like, through the therapy, like, by the end, the patient has, like, these, like, open wounds, these sores that, like, appear on his body and his face, um, so that, like, the doctor is sort of, like, somehow forcing him to physically manifest his trauma on his own skin, something like that. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a very, it's a very, uh, strange and, uh, uh, sort of absurd and uncomfortable way to set the tone for the movie. Cause like y'all mentioned, it's like, it, they treat it like a stage play. Cause it's like just these two men sitting in this like bl- dark void, you know, lit from above doing, going through this for several minutes. And then, you know, we cut and see that it's in like an auditorium and yeah, this a large well. audience, which is interesting because yeah. otherwise in the movie, like his practice is very isolationist. So yeah. Like, it's a very intentional choice to start it 
in such a distinctly well, different way. Yeah, he works he works alone with the wife, with Nola, because she's special, you know, as we mm-hmm. learn. But yeah, it seems like for the other patients, they part of it is sort of like a group therapy sort of thing, or doing it in front of others to show off his method or whatever. And our our, our protagonist, Frank played by Art Hindle, uh, who I always think looks like Big Ed from Twin Peaks. Um, He's got a very classic Americana. Yeah. Particularly his haircut. We've, yeah, we've, we've, we've uh, talked about him uh, before on the podcast years and years and years ago. Uh, He's in Black Christmas. uh, Another Canadian production. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's one of the boyfriends in that one. Um, But yeah, so, you know, we sort of see... Frank coming in and sitting down and catching the end of this uh, this violent negging session uh, where the doctor is talking to his patient like you're weak you should have we you should have been a girl because women are are weaker we what if we what if I start calling you Michelle instead of Mike <laughs> this this is where you know from the jump it feels like. There's some divorce guy energy and disdain for couples therapy and therapists in general. He's kind of a pop psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. You know, he has a book that he's written that's fairly popular, it seems, um, and very much a cult of personality, which is why the the performance aspect of the opening kind of makes so much sense in, like, immediately kind of explaining who this character is to us. And you see shades of future characters from his other movies in this, like Brian Oblivion and yeah. um, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character in Existence, Allegra, I can't remember the character's last Geller. name. Death to Allegra Geller. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, where there's just these, these weird kind of uh, brilliant figures within their field that have all of these people surrounding them and fawning on them and stuff like that. But yeah, so we, we see that, uh, that Frank has come to pick up his daughter because, uh, his daughter is allowed to stay there with the mother on weekends. They're having some sort of custody thing while she undergoes her psychoplasmic therapy. And when he picks up his daughter, he sees that she, or when he gets her home, rather, he sees that she has, like, bruises and scratches and bite marks on her back. And, of course, assumes that his wife is abusing the daughter uh, when she goes up to this uh, retreat for the weekends. So that's sort of uh, kickstarts the movement of the film as he's trying to figure out what the fuck is going on up here at this uh, mysterious psychoplasmic retreat facility um, and try to find a way to uh, keep his daughter from getting wrapped up in whatever's going on there. One of the things I love about the the setting, it's like super like 70s, mid-century modern, mm-hmm. like these huge glass windows kind of unconventional like and it's out architectural in the, style and it's out in the woods and it's winter so you've got these like beautiful snowy woodland landscapes with this very idyllic but modern like 
medical therapy uh, sort of retreat. Yeah, all the scenes that are the not... ideal kind of place to go and uh, and fix your brain, right? In in the isolation of nature. Well, I really like all the the scenes that are in Raglan's sort of lodge office space yeah. Uh, because yeah, there's these huge glass windows, like you were saying, outside of it, um, sort of an A-frame sloped roof. Very cozy and warm on the inside. Um, a lot of like cherry and like warm leathers and uh, it, they do the it the really feels like a uh, it, it feels like you're you're incubated inside of it from the cold out there. A womb, if you yeah. will. It's womb like and also like the color is really pretty because again, like it, everything in the foreground inside is very like warm and inviting and then like in the background it's all very cool and blue and cold. And I, I really like, like, the use of, like, warm-to-cool color in this film. They do this really classic 70s thing of having carpeting, like, bright orange, kind of, uh, I don't know, earthy orange carpet with a big rug over top of it. Oh, yeah. Like... All the wood paneling. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, it carries on throughout the other locations as well. Like, the the family's home, the grandparents' home in particular is... So seventies, like the grandma's the green floral. The kitchen with the bam, the bamboo wallpaper yeah. in the kitchen gets it, me every time. It's so distinctly seventies, and then even the the attic space and the rest, like yeah. it's, it's all it's always that that kind of dusty wallpaper. It's just a little bit too busy. We're old people house shit. Yeah, <laughs> so funny to think that that's that was just like the norm back then. When you compare it to, you know, 50 years later where everything now is just, like, hyper-minimal. It was sort of an awkward growing pain to minimalism because, like, 70s wallpaper is so distinct and weird. And it just hits this, like, kind of wretched sweet spot to me where, like, it's not as floral and appealing as, like, William Morris wallpaper, you know, from, like, previous eras um, it's a little bit more simple, but like, it's just, it hits that like 50, 50 negative space to busy space, white noise, mid ground that I just, it kind of vibrates against everything else it's on and it's awful. Um, I tend to like suede and leather and, and plushy, fuzzy carpet seventies decor a lot. And frankly, like we should never have stopped doing, um, sunken living rooms. Like we, yes, we fucked up yeah, there, yeah, man. Yeah, Bring back true. sunken living rooms. What are we doing? The conversation pit. Why did we abandon that? It's so great. It, <laughs> it's know. so It's talking about, about womb-like, right? Like how inviting is a, is a sunken living space, yeah. man? Fucked up. Like, I, I, I think, I think it's probably like one of the greatest like architectural failures of the modern age is that we abandoned. Wow. Okay. That. Cleveland, Cleveland making big sweeping statements. Here we go. Cleveland's a return to tradition. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Except for the seventies, nostalgia and demanding uh, a return to the past is definitely not a short road to authoritarianism, folks. Don't don't never. Listen. Yeah, no, no Hitler particles there. Nope, nope. <laughs> oh, speaking of weird particles, um, oh, you going with this, bud? Actually, you know what? Uh, let's. Footnote on weird particles. That's okay. a little too close to the end 
So we, we're not. I don't think. We're yeah. Gonna okay. So yet. we'll moving for, moving forward with the plot. Yeah. yeah. So so what what becomes Frank's issue here is he tries to go to talk to Doctor Raglan first and is like, my dumb bitch wife is obviously like beating our our five year old daughter. Like she didn't get those marks from me. I got she had them when I picked her up. It's like she's not coming back up here. And Doctor Raglan's like, oh well. Your wife's at like a very crucial moment in her treatment right now, and I don't think taking her daughter away from her would be wise because it could cause her to snap. And uh, and if you if you try, then we'll like you don't have any legal right to deny visitation, so we'll make sure that we uh, that we take legal action if if you don't keep bringing your daughter up here. And you know he goes to his lawyer, and his lawyer's like. Yeah, I mean, you don't have any legal uh, right here. Um, and so Frank is like, well, what if I can put together a case? What if I can prove that this new weird psychoplasmics fad is actually harmful? Like, it's actually doing damage to people. Like, if I can damage his reputation, then might I have something? The lawyer's like, yeah, I guess, maybe. His big, his His biggest warning is a truth, and that is that... The law favors the mother. The mother. Yes. Now, when when Cronenberg was going through this divorce, did he have children already? Was uh, there he had one? I okay. Was it Bra- was Brandon, was it Brandon? born? No, yeah, and I think, I think Brandon's later. Brandon. Okay. Yeah, is a photographer. Yeah. So I get you can you can really feel like if there's if there are children involved in this divorce, like you could really feel yeah, the well, <laughs> you can really feel Cronenberg's was... bitterness. If I remember correctly, I was I was looking into this right after uh, the movie ended, but I believe she was born. I want to say in like seventy two, which would make her about, about the same five, age six, as seven Andy years old. Yeah, in this movie, which man, there's some there's some things to unpack there. Uh, yes, Caitlin Cronenberg, probably most known for. Uh, uh, taking the the photograph that was on the the cover of Drake's album Views. No where shit, where he's sitting, sitting up on top of the. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is that really? Is that true? Yeah. I don't think <laughs> I real, I didn't realize that. I was wrong. She was born five years after this movie. Oh. Um, okay. For some reason, I was thinking she was older. How many Cronin babies are there? There's three, apparently. Were there any when this movie was made? Uh, Brandon was born a year after this. I don't know about his other kid. One daughter, Cassandra Cronenberg. It doesn't say her age, though, on here, so... Okay. Who knows? So, unknown, inconclusive, there may or may not have been a Cronin baby (laughs) in existence during this time. Well, there most likely was during the first marriage, because that's what it says, but... Who knows how old she was? Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Um, well, yeah. I mean, then it still makes sense that that Cronenberg is having these uh, these custody anxieties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I think too something that always strikes me about this movie is um, uh, to to fall back on on the pun yet again. Uh, this is one of his most like brooding films. I think. No, straight up atmospherically it's very it's very heavy it, i you know I, I don't think it's necessarily like his scariest or his most grotesque film but it's it's one of the ones with just like the worst vibes to me i've no, always I found i don't i don't know yeah, if y'all feel and slow I think, honestly, 
part of that is divorce energy. Yeah, you can feel it. Yeah. Like you can, you can just feel it. You can feel the resentment. You can feel the anger. I have a, I have a fun tidbit while I was looking at, you know, the third Cronenberg. I came upon this snippet in the the Wikipedia article in the book Cronenberg on Cronenberg. He revealed that the brood was inspired by events that occurred during the unraveling of his first marriage, with which caused both Cronenberg and his daughter Cassandra a great deal of turmoil. The character Nola Carveth, mother of the brood, is based on Cassandra's mother. Cronenberg said, you don't say. <laughs> Cronenberg said that he found the shooting of the climactic scene, uh, spoiler, in which Nola was strangled by her husband to be quote-unquote, very satisfying. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> oh, man. So messy divorce. Yeah, no shit. Well, yeah, that, that sort of uh, does spoil the ending of the film a little bit, but we'll, but we'll get there. A little bit. There's um, plenty more. So, yeah, okay. there's, there's plenty more. I gotta say, while we're talking about it, the themes here and, you know, messy divorce, like handling the, you know, like this, like a small child sort of being caught up in the middle of it and having to just witness the horrors, Talk about sister films, uh, Possession. Like, this movie and Possession, I think, have a great deal in common. Expand on that. So so much of Possession is is about, like, creating another you, a doppelganger of yourself, and, like, how that affects the your, your family around you. Um, I mean, mo- most of Possession is a couple screaming at each other um, and trying to deal with separation and loss there. Uh, there's so many great scenes of Sam Neill in his apartment coping with her not being there anymore. And um, the, I, I think that's very well reflected in this. And I think there's more there, but also it does it does spoil the ending of this movie. Of yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, doppelgangers are, are a big factor in both films as well. And having your, your trauma and that darkness replicated in you, or not replicated in you. It's just kind of cool. I think that's sort of the big difference between Possession and The Brood is The Brood is about replicating that darkness, like, almost out of you, whereas Possession is sort of like, you are imperfect, and by replicating yourself, you're creating a more perfect you. Um, but they're both, it's it's the same idea. It's, it's it's pontificating on sort of the same thing, and it uses a couple with a, with a young child as, as the mirror for that, like, as the, the allegory, um, and their their turmoil and their separation. The anxiety of replacing the mother is explored in both films. I think the anxieties come from slightly different places, though. I think the 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 like child is way more secondary in possession than it is here. Like the well, like chill like children and and motherhood is kind of like the central angst of this film, whereas it's definitely I I don't disagree that it's part of possession, but. I think the angst of that film is more rooted in, like, separation and, like, loss of control of yourself. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I find really interesting about Possession is, like, through selfishness, the child gets ignored. And the movie, like, actively ignores the mm-hmm. child. And we see the, the effect of that by the end of the movie with don't open, don't open, don't open, and he runs up sure. and himself. And, like, it just to spoil part of possession. But um, that neglect damages the kit. Yeah. Um, and here it's it's not neglect, it's the rest, but it's still exploring that same idea of the, you know, the, 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 the damage and the fallout from, you know, these, these events. 
Yeah, they're certainly not entirely dissimilar. I mm-hmm. won't. I won't so argue I with you. Like, I don't. I don't think they're they're identical, like a doppelganger. But there's. I think they're sister films. Yeah, they make. They would make for an interesting double feature. I think a doppelganger feature. I don't know which one I would play first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, this isn't the first time that Cronenberg has explored this idea of of replicated self. Uh, very recently on the podcast, we did Dead Ringers, which yeah. you know explores very many of those same themes. But you were you were absolutely right in that like the film has a very strong like brooding kind of bleak vibe to permeating it. anxiety. Yeah. Um, I think what's so interesting is it's juxtaposed by uh, kill sequences that get a little campy. Yeah, they do. I kind yeah, kind of absurd, but in a in an unsettling way. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think there's, to sort of linger on the atmosphere of the film a little bit, like, there's not what I would describe as a single comfortable frame in this movie. Like, there's never any sort of, like, feel-good scenes or any kind of tenderness or any sort of, like, it's just, like, everybody's always on edge from from the get-go even when he takes early on he takes uh candy to her grandmother's house to nola's mother's house um to watch her while he has to go to work and while he's there like not only is the grandmother drinking heavily the whole time (laughs) um but she's also talking about childhood baggage and how she doesn't have a good relationship with Nola and all of that kind of resentment. She says something fucking insane, like, uh, 30 seconds after you're born, you have your first memory and 60 seconds later, you start lying to yourself about it. She's like, Jesus fucking Christ. And like the, the, the husband's response to it is he's like, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's all like, right. I got to go to work now. Like, <laughs> he might as well turn to the camera and be like, women, am I right? It's like, what? <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like, I'm just asking you to watch your granddaughter for a little while. Don't go putting any of that shit in her head. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but it's kind of like is cool because uh, immediately after that, we cut to the first session of the wife with Doctor Ragland, yeah, and that's what I said. And uh, there, and he's he's imitating both the he's and they're doing the same mirror therapy, and yeah. he's he's imitating the mother and the father. I don't know which one comes first or not, but the mother is commented on with her, and that yeah, it's right, it's right she after she has that said scene, all these yeah. terrible things to her, and that the mother was a terrible. Well, yeah, person. he he starts playing the role of candy and being and asking you know saying like you hurt me mommy uh you know you hit me and you scratched me and she's kind of like no i didn't do that mommies don't hurt their uh their children it's sort of a roundabout way for him to interrogate her about the the bruises on candy's back right and 
sort of midway through it, he switches from playing Candy to playing the mother after he's gotten to her minutes like, oh no, mommies do hurt their children. And like who, like some, she's like, yeah, some mommies are fucked up and bad. And he's like, like who, like which mommy? She's like, like my mommy. Uh, and then he like switches that role and, um, has that confrontation. And then we go back to, uh, the the grandmother's house as she's going to ref- uh, refresh her drink uh, for like the fourth time um, and we get the first kill sequence uh, where she's like on her way into the kitchen she hears you know a bunch of stuff being smashed kind of looks like there's like a, a, a cat or like a possum or something like up on the on the counter I think I literally said like yeah because there's a shot of the kitchen and it's from it's a low angle shot. We yeah. can't see the, the counter. We can only see the like along the along the, the the face of it and all the cupboards. And things just start getting thrown on the ground and down a chain. That's just a cat. It's a cat in the house. Well, right before you see like uh, a small but really wrinkled old hand burst through a tiny door. Yeah, like a cupboard door. Yeah, like, like punches a out. Door, yeah, and then just spill a bunch of milk and orange juice on the floor. Well, she walks into the kitchen. She is attacked by a small figure in like a like a bright red little like snowsuit, a jumper. Well, yeah, um, uh, yeah, they literally milk that scene for all it's worth. <laughs> that is the second week in a row you've done that. <laughs> you gotta stop. You gotta come. <laughs> it won't up be with the last. <laughs> you gotta come up with not if I can help jokes. it. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let's not get carried away here. <laughs> all right, slow down. <laughs> um. The, like, small figure, like, beating her to death with the... It's like a meat tenderizer. Yeah. Um, the, I, I think it's also partially the, the, the bright red that does this, but it reminds me a lot of uh, Don't Look Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, which came several years before this, I think. Yeah, and I mean, similarly, like, it's kind of a play on pacing, where it's like, most of the film up until that point was very slow paced. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, that kill sequence is aggressive in like its pacing and like, it's a lot of quick cuts yeah, and a lot of, you know, limited perspective. You know, we only see uh, part of them or we only see their hands yeah. or, you know, particular elements it treats it like a like a sort of giallo uh kill scene a little bit but uh it reminds me of this whole movie with the the 60s veneer the tension the regular murders the heavy strings reminds me of a fucking hitchcock movie yeah i can see that a little bit i get a lot of hitchcock i can see that a little bit cranenberg's got a very different directorial style than hitchcock but uh I see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Like you said, though, Ben, like it is a little, it is kind of campy because it's like uh, what appears to be a child, you know, like beating a woman to death with like a with like a little hammer. Um, And you know, I I think it's it's supposed to sort of be evocative of Candy as well because like at the beginning of the movie we see her in this in the same kind of red jumper um 
And it's like you almost for like a second wonder like if it's her, but we see her in like the other room because she's looking through the the old photographs of the grandmother. So we intuitively know that it can't be. Yeah, well, and, you know, we get those close-up shots of the hands. And the, yes, the right. The hands are old and wrinkled looking. And I like that when Candy goes into the kitchen and, like, sees her grandmother dead, and then she looks at the stairs, you get a little glimpse of, like, the, the figure's face, and it, like, grabs the... Uh, railings of the staircase and leaves bloody handprints. Yeah, I thought that shot itself was cool. And I will say, like, this first kill sequence does a really good job, like, obfuscating, like, the whole creature design. Because, like, honestly, I think one of my minor flaws with this movie is the the actual kid makeup looks kind of janky and bad it looks you mentioned it in the opening in your in your name but it looks like the i think you should leave sketch where uh tim robinson is at the mall wearing too much stuff as a prank yeah all the prosthetic stuff fucking shit on too much fucking shit on me i don't even want to be around right now (laughs) yeah it looks like that the uh, the face stuff especially it does but i (sighs) to me it works I think it work. I think it works too. I mean, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but yeah, I think it. I think it works too because it's supposed to be uncanny. Like they're supposed to look kind of like kids, but it is kind of funny. But that sort of works for me. I could see it not, and I think that's equally valid. I think. But, I think what really what really makes it is that they all have the the same like blonde straight across bangs. Yeah. That uh, that and can that candy does too, Silly. and that's like that's like the goofiest thing. But also, it is it it kind of falls into that like uncanny thing where like the goofiness somehow makes it worse again, more sinister. The the uh, the Anton Sugar effect, yes. you know, fucked up haircut. <laughs> yeah, weird. Mm. Yeah, the Fargo, the Fargo, yeah, the Fargo, the Fargo effect. Yeah, the uh, a force of of preternatural evil with a stupid haircut. You know, <laughs> I appreciate that kind of stuff. But um, I mean, yes, like this is a a relatively low budget film. Like that stuff, you could say is maybe kind of yeah. And like I said, like they do a good job of shooting around it a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. It's just a couple times, like, sure, where it is particularly egregious. Where I will say it. it it first like on first viewing it was before i knew the big reveal and the rest it did feel kind of cheap um it's a little the makeup is a little apparent it's a little rubbery which also probably makes sense because they were like putting makeup like pretty extensive makeup on kids that's got to be like a that's that's a big ass that's a pretty big challenge i don't think they were they were probably little In people cases, i i don't think they're i would doubt that they were actually children i think it was both i think they were Fight, probably yes. little people um the makeup it, it does feel a little leathery and, you know, there's not a lot of articulation. Um, but I think that kind of works for this, specifically because they are fucked up little replicants. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'll always have a soft spot for uh, movies where the, the villain or monster is like a weird little freak. There's always that part of me that that longs for that, that longs for <laughs> the weird little freak. 
you know, shit like Gremlins, shit like Basket Case, um, shit like Troll 2, you know, like, I, I love, I love a weird, a weird, nasty little guy, and this movie is full of, um... I will say, it's jumping ahead just slightly, but, like... That's, that's okay. Um, I think... To. Watch the brood. Uh, just watch the, it. Uh, <laughs> the example where, like, the creature design works best for me is, like, that autopsy scene. You know, after the first one dies mm-hmm. in the house they they take it to a, a medical the coroner exam. yeah yeah after it exam. kills the grandpa because after it kills you know, yeah let's just get to that point it kills the it kills the grandma no one knows what happened it then the the grandpa shows up and he's trying to get back in he can't into her life and in the medical facility he's also turned back he gets very drunk he goes back to the house where his ex-wife died lamenting her her passing and then here comes the creature again. Was hiding under the bed this entire time. Just chilling. And it, it comes up, grabs two snow globey paperweights. Labyrinth and, orbs. Yeah, the labyrinth <laughs> orbs. Um, and uh, it's very hoggle-like. And, and then it beats bon- it. Bonks, yeah. him, bonks him to death with those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, he's a big bonk. And Frank shows up um, right after this uh, and encounters the creature the creature throws one of the labyrinth balls through the wall yeah throws it i found really <laughs> funny no displaying its incredible strength <laughs> i do like that they 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 make sure to do that every now and then yeah. to show that like these little these little uh gremlin things are like stronger than at i mean they have to be right to be like a believable threat because again they're like the stature of five-year-olds but multiple times we see them like punching through walls and shit (laughs) like you mentioned throwing the the orb through the just like clean through the wall it's cool too like from a parental perspective i mean they don't have but uh five years old is around the time where they get to that age where they're still pretty stupid but they're getting big oh yeah you know and as a parent i I, i've had enough friends you know who are parents you know of children that age i've seen that where it's like oh man they're getting to the point where they could they could start overpowering me if they get too much bigger because I'm tired, and I'm a parent, <laughs> and, like, his parents are tired, and, uh... <laughs> no five-year-old will ever overpower them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that, that idea of, like, yeah, having, having to deal with, like, a still, like, very large, but still infantile, you know, creature is, uh... And I, I like, I think this film displays that really well, where it's like, oh, damn, you're getting powerful. Uh, oh, Jesus, I gotta really step up my parents. I think you're game. really overselling the strength of your average five-year-old, but <laughs> I see where you're coming from, I I'm, suppose. I'm, I'm a weak, pathetic gamer, Tease. All threats uh, scare me, and, uh... But but yes, while while Frank <laughs> is, is battling, uh, this, this weird little creature, it just kinda dies... Yeah, it, like, falls to the floor and, like, starts wheezing and asphyxiating, almost. Yeah, and it just dies. His neck gets all bulbous. You can see all the wrinkles. And so they, you know, they take it to, uh, he goes to the police, of course, and they take it to the the medical examiner who breaks down, like, all of the the weird, fucked up shit about it. I will say, that's where the creature design works for me, because it looks especially uncanny, especially... Under that... Purple the way lighting. It's shot with yeah. that like stark purple lighting. What I like too is that fairly early on to that scene as he's describing like the creature's abilities, what it can see. The rest he, he does describe that it can't see color. Or that it only sees yeah. in black and white. And the scene itself is shot, 
you know, monochromatic. Monochromatic it's, it's just purple, purple, yeah. So I, I think that's cool. Like, it, uh, you know, it's sort of and a, also it like a sense of like how they see the world. It literally sees it. it literally sees black and white, but also metaphorically sees. It can't be reasoned with. There's no nuance. There is either there is either rage or neutrality. You know, it's all it's all black and white. But uh, yeah, they, the doctor gives us like the breakdown of like what what is wrong with this thing. Like, doesn't have any teeth, but its gums are kind of like sharp, like a beak. Um, doesn't have a belly button, uh, so it's not born traditionally. Uh, like like, he's, like we said, it's got weird fucked up eyes, so it can only see in black and white. But most notably, it has like a weird sack between its shoulder blades that the the doctor described as like amniotic a, a nutrient sack similar to like an egg yolk or something or a camel's hump and like when the nutrients are depleted from the sack then it just dies uh so that's why it sort of just like keeled over while it was attacking it ran, it's it it's gas tank ran dry is that's i cool, think how the, like, the doctor describes it that point uh, and all the angles we see from because when it goes to kill the the grandpa, we see its face. Yeah, but it's kind of fucked up. But like, it still just looks like like a weird fucked up little child creature, and um, kind of like a child with like the face of an old man, sort yeah. of. Yeah, like, like it's Kira. yeah, um, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, but then when we see it on the autopsy table, like the, the the puffy jumper has been removed, and it feels even more like alien. Yeah, there because it's like a Ken doll, like it's. it's you know, like fairly smooth. There's no, there's no genitalia or anything. No belly button, yeah. and it's, uh, it feels fake and plastic and artificial. And again, reinforcing that note I made earlier that like the 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 fakeness of it, the is and the, almost the cheapness of their replication is kind of creepy in this circumstance. Yeah, and it is. It is one of those things where you, you laugh at you laugh at it at first. Later on, we see two of them or whatever, and I see, oh, here comes the lollipop guild. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's... Well, because they're all wearing different colored jumpers. Yeah, they're wearing bright colored rainbow jumpers, and they're, you know, they've got their hammers, and it's just... (laughs) It's funny to me. But uh, The scene scene later where they come for the the teacher is is pretty funny, mm because while Frank is out uh, fighting the one after he finds Grandpa dead, uh, like... Candy's teacher is like babysitting for him, and while she steps in to take to assume a motherly role, right? Yes. Um, and while she's there, the phone rings and she answers it, and Nola is on the other end and assumes, of course, that you know they're having an affair. Oh, I like I like how she says, "Oh, are you two having your own little?" private pta meeting yeah like um i i love i love her her range um yeah she, she so quickly goes from docile and friendly and motherly to just bitter and knives out angry and furious it, it's excellent just she's so crazy biting. yeah um but yeah so then a day or two later some uh some more little goblin children uh show up to kill the teacher um because it seems awfully like hmm, whenever Nola is uh, is having a session with uh, Doctor Raglan and is like expressing anger or rage against a specific person, be it her mother or her father or this teacher who she who she presumes to be having an affair with her husband, seems like 
just after that, those people get murdered by goblin children. There must be some sort of connection, I wonder. I have a question for y'all. Yeah. Uh, when Frank goes after the grandpa and, you know, he leaves the, the teacher there, um, he leaves her with Raglan's book. Yeah. Which is literally called, like, Child of Rage or something like that. Formed of Rage, isn't it? Formed of Rage? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, what did y'all think about that? Because I almost feel like it's it's almost too direct. I think uh, it's just right. I think yeah. any more and it would be too much. It's it's coming up on it, though. I yeah. agree. I liked it. I, I liked, like, about halfway into the movie, like, I see the book cover and I'm like, ah, oh, get, I get it. You know? like Yeah. It's, yeah, you do get it before, but I think it's it's kind of cool foreshadowing and... Like it's it's what he would title the book, and you know, yeah, and there's there's other things prior to that, you know, that sort of hint at it, like we sort of alluded to at the beginning, you know, seeing the Mike that patient like sort of express these lesions on his body, like during this session, and at one point Frank goes while he's trying to like put together a case against Ragland, goes to talk to another former patient. Um, the shape of rage. Yeah, the shape of gotcha, rage. Yeah, yeah um, who believes that uh, through his therapy sessions with Doctor Raglan uh, that he developed like uh, lymphatic cancer. He's got like tumorous growths yeah, on his. It's great on his he's neck. Got, he's got a like a like a cover. He's got like a scarf neck. around a his scarf, neck. Yeah. yeah, and so throughout the scene. Can I kind of I, I want to break that down a little bit because I love sure. that whole sequence. Um, first off, it's the same actor who plays the weird, uh, ambiguously accented um, shop owner in Existence. He's a Cronenberg regular. He's yeah. also in uh, Videodrome. He's in uh, Scanners as well. I'm pretty sure he pops up in a lot of Cronenberg. I stuff. love him. I think he's a great character actor and. Uh, Robert A. Silverman. Excellent, thank you. Um, the father enters the room that this guy is staying in because he's, he's he's been sent to talk to him as well because he's also trying to form a case against Raglan because he was an ex-patient. And his room is really nasty. There's like newspapers and clutter all over the bed. And we don't see him at first, but we hear some weird sounds. And then in the mirror, we can kind of see like he's on the floor rolling around. And he's doing like a weird rolling on the floor on a mat exercise. Yeah. himself going. He talks about... Um, the lymphatic system, and he's so, he's just off, and I love it. I love how weird he is, and kind of, he's just like this weird fucked up dude, um, and we can see, like, it's it's affected him, but he's trying to come back around, and he's doing what he can to be, like, a normal person, um, and it's great. It, it's a really compelling scene, um, and I, I was just drawn, drawn to his character and, like, trying to figure out, like, okay, how fucked up is this guy? Is he safe to be around? Yes. You know, it seems like he's got the right intentions or whatever, but... He's just kind of a weird guy, just like me. Mm. And um, uh, <laughs> right when we think he's kind of a normal guy, he then pulls down the scarf around his neck, and we see that his throat just has this fucked up, nasty growth on it. And he's, you can see he's ashamed of it, and it's it's yeah. probably the, the primary reason he wants you know he wants to call him out to explain that hey, this this practice can cause cancer. Well, yeah, he he has a conversation with Frank. He's like, how do you prove that, you know, that this treatment, like, gave you cancer? He's like, oh, well, you can't, of course. There's no way to prove that. But taking him to court over anything 
is revenge, because even if I lose, it's still bad press for Raglan. That you'll never be able to, he'll never be able to shake that tagline, uh, psychoplasmics causes cancer, or whatever. Um, so there's there's lots of these things like leading up to this point in the film that like that is what is the weird unique thing about whatever psychoplasmics is. We don't really we never learn anything about what this science actually is. The only time we ever see it in practice is uh Oliver Reed in a karate gi uh pretending to be people's mommies and daddies, you know? <laughs> And through that is causing them to physically manifest signs of their rage or their trauma or whatever. Um, and as it just so turns out, uh, Nola is is special. She's like the, the crown jewel of this practice because she is budding little uh, cancerous children. Uh Little shapes of rage. Little shapes of rage that act based off of her mood. When she's angry, they kill. When she's mellow, they're docile. You know. I really love the cover of Shapes of Rage too. That it's a it's a clenched fist with a with a mouth formed over it, like you know, like the the angry. Yeah, it's like it's holding the hand is the the hand hand is holding the the open mouth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like a lot of the ideas of psychoplasmics really play into like trendy psychiatry you know pop psychiatry type of stuff like parts work yeah where you know you're talking about like uh different parts of your personality that kind of take control over um, well that shit was huge in the 70s right this movie came out only yeah. a year after i think uh invasion of the body snatchers which also has like that's a huge part of that movie is that is like these famous pop psychologists um so like yeah it's it really is uh something that that's emblematic of that time too. yeah i think from the 50s into the 70s yeah um, well shitty. cronenberg is a a therapy hater from the look of this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, the therapist is probably on his wife's side. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they're always on the women's they're all, side. They're always, yeah, that's right. The the court and the therapist, they always, they always favor the bitch wife. <laughs> Everybody loves her. They uh, get to know her. Yeah, I I love when uh, after Raglan realizes that uh, he he learns that the kindergarten teacher has been has been killed, and he he you know has I guess been putting all of these pieces together himself. He knows about the the brood, obviously, um, but he he closes down his facility and sends all of the other patients home so he can just focus on nola and uh we we get another scene with the 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 cancer guy who has now taken in the uh the dude from the beginning who's like obviously real fucked up um and you know he sort of gives some exposition about what's going on out there and you know mentions to uh to frank that you know there's the like disturbed kids that they're keeping in the woodshed or whatever um because after the the kindergarten teacher is dead like candy disappears um and we see i i do love that shot of her with the two broodlings on either side walking down the the snowy highway in canada 
But the the reason I bring up the Mike guy is because I I like the scene where he's like he's like come on will you just be my daddy my daddy left me and then my surrogate daddy left me I need a new daddy will you be my daddy please <laughs> please be my daddy yeah well it's so fucked up because like these people that are like prey for Raglan are clearly very broken people yeah Horrible, absolutely you know. Mm-hmm. And that's and what see, makes them more susceptible. They're they're right. they're children, you know. They're adults, but they're they're in an infantile state. They're yeah. Well, it seems like the the little bit that we see, they all they all have fucking mommy and daddy issues, right? They all have childhood trauma. But yeah, like when he sends all those people home, it's like yeah, he doesn't actually give a shit about helping these people. It's the furtherment of his career, and he only needs Nola. Like she's the great success, so he's all she's all that he needs to study because she's been popping out all of these uh little goblin freaks um but that yeah that that leads us to to the the final confrontation of the film because frank goes out to uh the the facility he's gotta rescue his kid yeah to gotta go rescue rescue his daughter um and you know he he has a sort of a standoff with raglan outside the shed where raglan sort of explains what's going on he's like Look, we have to like if I, I can help you get your daughter, but we have to do this my way. You need to go in and convince Nola that like you want to get back together and be like a happy family. Because as long as she's chill, then the brood will be chill too. Like they're up there in the attic, and that's where they've got Candy. It's like if you can keep her calm, then I can just walk in, grab Candy, and walk out, and everything will be a okay. But if she's agitated, then they'll be violent. So, as long as she stays chill, she won't demand full custody of the child. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so then that that sets up this this uh, kind of. Um, uh, dual climax where we've got uh, Frank, you know, trying to reason with Nola, and we get the 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 famous shot of her opening up her robe and spreading it like butterfly wings. She's got this horrible uh, external amniotic womb thing growing out of her stomach that you know she opens up and pulls out another oh, little she, baby she bites into it and rips that's it open right with her yeah teeth like a like a feral animal um no it's it's really vile and it's incredibly incredibly well made yeah you know, great which, classic cronenberg body horror practicals mm-hmm. looks really fucking good and so well used too like and i just you know this, this goes for all of cronenberg's films right like and, I, and i'm starting to really get this now um is that like just again, his his use of body horror is just so well befitting an incredibly well written plot, right? And like the, the, this, it wouldn't just it wouldn't be as as cool if it wasn't in service of such a great story and like so such a cool. It's just it's acting as such a neat allegory as well. And yeah, and I don't feel just, like it, God. Technically, it's just it's so well done. Like, I don't feel like it's ever used for like shock value. Like it's no. gr- it's it's grotesque and it's it's shocking, but it's always in in service of story yeah. and character. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like that's that's something he really understands. It's never just gross for the sake of being gross. Like, which is amazing because he is 
he you know he 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 lives in infamy as like the body horror the body director. horror guy yeah but it's not because his movies are just loaded down with body horror it's because he knows how to use it like, yeah and I think that's super cool because again going into learning about Cronenberg um and starting with these movies not knowing very much I just kind of assumed like oh yeah the brood it's got to have fucking <laughs> ghouls in it left and right and you know there'll be a big nest of all these creatures and whatnot no it's so much better than that it's so much fucking tighter um and it's the same and again, i think i said it during videodrome as well because i think if you go back and listen to that podcast you probably hear me kind of coming up on that re- revelation but not really being there yet and I, I think this movie is where i've really come around and i'm seeing that he's just yeah he knows just surgically um how to use it much yeah. like um Dead Ringers, he literally uses it surgically. Um, just he's in the, that one dream sequence. He's the master. The future is a great example. Oh, yeah, of yes. He's the master. He is. Um, we, we didn't even mention that when she pulls the little baby out, oh, she starts there, yeah. she starts licking it. Yeah. Licking well, the blood off the, it like an animal, like a cat. The thing feels very primal. Like, if, Have you guys ever seen like like footage of like a cow giving birth? Yeah, I mean, I've seen cats give birth right. when I was a kid. Like, Our um, cats had kittens. Or uh, a baby elephant for instance, will will like like kind of come out like still like in that, that kind of wretched sack. Yeah. Before it's it's torn open. And sometimes like the feral mothers will like rip open the sack and then they'll start licking the blood off of the Yeah, they lick them the clean baby. and then they eat the afterbirth and shit. Like yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and this scene is yeah, she's just she starts licking all the blood off of this horrible little baby monster. Meanwhile upstairs Dr. Raglan is trying to to get uh, candy out of this room full of of broodlings. You see how many of them there are. How much how rage she like, has. Matching pajama outfit. Yeah, they're all in like yeah, they're all in in different colored uh, like pajama onesies yeah. with like little hoods, and they all got they've all got their straight across bangs <laughs> poking out. You like like what's so cool is it's explained like literally like what's happening, but there's so many little elements that aren't that you kind of just have to apply your own texture to like for instance i guess they're all there and she's taking care of them because she's learning how to like accept her anger and learn about it or maybe to like give birth to her anger and get it get it away from her and get well they're it, her you know, children to, to she has the, mater- the maternal instinct they're her brood yeah you know and but, and raglan's keeping them because he's studying and this is all his yeah. project i like to wonder if like it started from a good place like at first raglan was like yeah if you give birth to the shape of your rage you can let it go you know and like it, then it's gone from you but like no she's still she just keeps giving yeah. birth to rage over and, and over the, again the process is fucked up i, I and, and also too that like they never say it but they they pretty heavily imply like because like these these visions keep coming to her in dreams and whatnot that she has like a psychic link with them. Oh, I mean they yeah. pretty they pretty much say it. I mean they That's act cool. they act based off of her will, right? Off mm-hmm. of you know Raglan says consciously or subconsciously they act off of her motivations. That's why they go and kill the teacher and bring candy back because she's got that that need to have her child and i love that scene too when he walks in there because initially like you don't see how many of them there are you know we've kind of joked about like how many five-year-olds can you take because it's like the scene where they kill the teacher in the kindergarten is pretty fucking funny because there's two of them and they literally have like toy hammers that like the kids are playing with and it works because there's like a really cool duality there where it's kind of funny it's like oh it's just two of them with toy hammers like beating her to death and it's like, like, how like they, can they do yeah. it? but also like 
it, so much of that scene is framed with just shots of like shocked toddlers and how oh, terrified yeah, they're like witnessing this death. And it's, it's, yeah, they kill the teacher in front of her, in in front of her whole classroom. So you're laughing, but pretty nervously. But it is, you know, I made the joke, it's like skills issue. It's like, if you can get, (laughs) if you can get killed by two toddlers with toy hammers, then like that really is on you. But it's like in that, in the scene where Dr. Raglan goes in there to like get candy, it's like, you can see that's sort of this long room that's like full of bunk beds, but the framing is focused enough on him and it's tight enough that you don't get like a great sense of it. And he gets down to the other end of the room and Candy is there sleeping and there are like a couple of the broodlings like around her. But like as he's trying to pick her up, you just see like around the room like more and more of them like sitting up out of their beds and there's like 20 of them. Yeah, well I love the fact that that's paired with like it's just really brilliantly cross-cut with the emotional climax. With what's happening downstairs, um, yeah. What's going on downstairs. And so, like, when there's, like, there's a lot of emotional highs and lows in that conversation. Yep. And you see the immediate reaction, or response, from the brood yeah. upstairs. It's like as she's getting angrier and angrier, it's like as that's escalating, we see more and more of them sitting up. And you know, like I said, I feel like I could take like eight, you know, maybe ten five year olds <laughs> in a fight. I don't think I could take twenty of them. No. no um you know, so it's like even at that point and, and you know, Raglan is he does have a gun and he's like Shooting them, and they're like being the squibs are huge incredible. squibs, yeah. just like, like really dark, almost black. Blood. Yeah, blowing huge holes in these weird little goblin kids, but they 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 eventually overwhelm him, like you know, like Dawn of the Dead, um, and and uh, beat him to death, uh, and then like downstairs, like you said, we we keep coming back to that, and uh, Nola starts screaming, is like I would kill candy before letting you take her from me like i will kill her before i let her go with you and it's like at that moment it's like they all turn as one and look at candy who's at the other end of the room uh and rush her you know and then she's like she manages to get out and lock the door and she's trying to hold it closed and all their little arms start punching through the the thin plywood door i don't know what they did to get that like traumatized reaction out of her like i i that shot where it's a it's a really common um trope in in horror for someone to be on the other side of a locked door as it's being banged with their back up against it looking yeah it's a it's a very common shot but this one i found it it really landed like she looks earnestly terrified and i wonder I like, like what, what do they do to scare that toddler yeah you know? i feel like, like it, they... <laughs> i wonder that <laughs> probably too. not much i mean they scare pretty easy but i wonder that too because it feels like the only genuine em- scaring toddlers a lot but the, yeah. the only genuine emotion we get out of that kid for that entire movie i don't think that little girl's girl's performance is like overall very good well, i think i think it's sort of written to service that because for the most part for the majority of the movie She's just silent and just doing a thousand yard stare. Yeah, it's just a shell like, shot. She speaks kind of very, thing. very yeah. rarely. So, like when she is, so yeah, it's it's a stilted child's performance, but also she is stilted and and yeah, she's shut supposed in to be traumatized. And, you know, yeah, I guess, up. I guess so. To me, it works. Um, but uh, yeah, well, and as this is happening, it escalates to what what you uh, uh, mentioned in that quote earlier, Ben, where it just ends with Frank uh, strangling Nola to death. 
um and when as she dies the the brood dies and then everything is a-okay or is it? or is it yeah because he, he goes upstairs gets his daughter heads out on the road um to get her to a hospital or just to get to safety or you know wherever um uh, maybe just tell him to, to have a drink and uh there you know he's doing like a thousand yard stairs he's driving back home and so is she sitting uh sitting on the seat next to him and then the camera slowly moves in on her arm and there's two bumps two little skin tags yeah mm-hmm. that almost kind of look like they sort of have faces like there's like some discoloration on it that sort of like suggests like an eye and a mouth kind of um i don't know if that's just me projecting I that or I if didn't that's get, intentional I just like little, little pimples um, yeah i mean they look cool. like little skin tags but mm-hmm. like there's well, i don't know i i saw kind of i saw i saw some faces in there um yeah and, and then the movie ends and it's like i mean yeah geez when he goes up to to get candy like you just see like how fucking traumatized she is like she's like hiding in the corner it's like that kid's fucked up and, and that theme for is life throughout the movie and i guess that's the whole deal is like you know uh the, the father even says at one point like i'm worried like even already at this age i've like imprinted something yeah on her and that i've you know like i've i've messed her up stuck um, in a cycle of childhood trauma yeah and, yep. you, and you hear parents say that a lot where it's like damn i really hope i don't just like fuck up my kid you know accidentally you know yeah. however because it's just you know i always have the fear of becoming your parents right you know yeah. and yeah those 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 cycles of violence and and trauma um and uh yeah everything is uh is not so hunky dory at the end a bleak ending <laughs> to a bleak film <laughs> about how much Cronenberg hates his ex-wife. <laughs> very satisfying. Yeah, yeah, very, very satisfying <laughs> to just uh, imagine himself strangling her to death, I guess. Um, we didn't really mention it, but another uh, great Howard Shore score yeah. in this movie. Um, Love the Shore score. Yeah, as he scored pretty much all of Cronenberg's movies, you can always Almost count entirely on entirely strings. Yeah, one. you can always count on on a good on a good score in a Cronenberg movie because he got the goat Howard. Mm-hmm. That this is a really Shore. early Howard Shore score mm-hmm. when you think about it, because you know he's been going at it since Cronenberg started. I don't know. Oh, since before that, what he was doing before Shore did this. some westerns as well, I believe. Really. Never heard a Howard Shore score that I didn't like. Well, Cleve, do you want to slap a rating on this? You can do the honors. I sure do. Um, I was looking up. I was trying to find like any evidence of that. Of what? Uh, Howard Shore. How long he's been? How long he's been at it? Um, you can just pull up his IMDb and. 1978. Well, this, was, this is his second film that, that he's scored. Yeah, there you go. Okay, and cool. So I was right. This the, was his first partnership sure. with Cronenberg. First partnership with Cronenberg and his mm-hmm. second score. The first one was uh, in 1978. I miss you, hugs and kisses. Never heard. Of Never that heard of that. Yeah, and he but did yeah. a TV series in 1970. And then he's a musical director of The Heart and Lorne Terrific Hour <laughs> in 1970. How about that? He was the musical director for SNL. Between seventy five and eighty, yeah, I was this just era. looking at I was just looking at his first score that his 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 first composer credit, yeah. 
because um, music directing is is yeah, a little bit different. He was the uncredited conductor for Tom Hanks's Big. That's crazy. Anyway, uh, score. Uh, speaking of scores, I'm going to put a score on this movie. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, I'm so torn because I don't I don't know if I can give it like as high of a rating as say like again cause I, just, I I see a lot of like themes pair between this and possession and and um or if i can give it as high of a rating as like some of like his other films but i think maybe that's just golden apples and golden oranges and this was a really fantastic film and again i'm gonna be thinking about it for a while you know maybe i'll soften on it when i'm not so hot off of seeing it but right now i'm i'm feeling a five i'm gonna go ahead and... nice um yeah i i mean i i don't think this is cronenberg's best by any means but it's certainly one of my favorites um, I really love this movie. I'm going to give it a f- very strong four and a half out of five. It's not quite perfect for me. Um, I think there is just, uh, just a taste of that, like real life bitterness and resentment, uh, is, is kind of, kind of feels bad. Um, aside from everything else, the movie does spectacularly. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely, definitely one of my fave Cronenberg's. Move over, Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> Move over, Marriage Story. This is the divorce movie. <laughs> um, you know, I, as someone who's seen all of Cronenberg stuff, I think this is my favorite of Cronenberg's early era. I would say, like pre nineteen eighty era. Mm. Um, I definitely prefer it over sure. Shivers and Rabbit and Fast Company and the original crimes of the future um that being said it's still fairly low budget and cronenberg definitely grows into what he's known as today uh through his films of the 80s um still an impressive outing i'm gonna give it a strong four out of five all right well that will give the brood an average of four and a half out of five um yeah, definitely. It's on Max, so uh, if you're looking for someone to stream it and you haven't seen it before, I do think it's a, a somewhat lesser talked about uh, Cronenberg because, yeah, I agree. He really hits his stride in the 80s with the run of, like, Videodrome through Dead Ringers, yeah. um, I think is, like, truly the golden era. But, like, you see him working his way into that, and, and it's really strong. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk about this one. Thanks for, for picking it, Cleve. Oh, happy to. I'll be picking more in the future, I'm sure. Um, well, next week we're moving on to our first Patreon pick of 2024. Um, this uh, pick comes courtesy of our honorary pod boy, Sam. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, Wreck 2, the sequel to uh, the classic Spanish found footage zombie movie uh they made it not very long after the first one same directors uh i have seen this one uh it's not as good as the first one but it's in i think we'll have plenty to talk about okay. i think we'll have plenty to talk about for Wreck sure to day of reckoning day, day of reckoning yeah <laughs> uh so that'll be next week back to requiem for a dream <laughs> <laughs> all right Let's do a sponsor. Oh, yes, the sponsor. I forget sometimes. The shelf won't let me forget. The shelf clings and clamors calling for a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by a very prestigious sponsor. Um, 
you know, uh, I think I, I don't, I, I definitely don't think we could do this episode without them. And I, I think it's really important that we we honor their noble name. This episode was brought to you by Dirt. Holy shit, we got Dirt to sponsor this episode. All of it. Oh my god, boys, we finally hit the fucking big time. We hit the dirt <laughs> pot. Dirt has finally sponsored our podcast. Wow, gee, we're just rolling in dirt. You know, folks out there, they always said that Pop People podcast doesn't mean dirt. But now, it means exactly dirt, motherfucker. But now we're in the dirt. We're, we're up to soil. We're up to our necks in dirt. Mm, what about... Dirty podcast boys. What about you, <laughs> asshole? Yeah, fucker. You ain't got dirt like we got dirt. So buy, so buy dirt. Who are straight dirted. Sponsoring the podcast this week. Thank you, dirt. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, that'll do it for us this week. If you like the show and you like dirt, then please don't forget to leave us a five star rating and review wherever you're listening to this. Help us uh, get into other people's algorithms and whatnot. You can also uh, always support the Patreon or support the podcast at Patreon. Uh, patreon.com slash pod people pod shout out to our honorary pod boys sam zach micah mitchell and yans y'all are the best uh and uh yeah follow us at letterbox.com slash pod people pod where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews for my extracurricular recommendation this week i'm gonna shout out another canadian canadian artist this is Warren Cronenberg. I've been digging into some of the uh, new music from 2024, finally. And so far, uh, my highlight album is uh, the new Departure Chandelier album. <laughs> if you like Quebecois black metal about how Napoleon is the Antichrist, check out Departure Chandelier. That wild. Holy shit. Uh, the new album is called uh, Satan Soldier of Fortune, and it's really good. Um, yeah. Since we're uh, focusing on Canadians, I'll I'll keep my shout out Canadian as well and uh, go watch all of the works of Nathan Fielder. Oh God, yeah, uh, man, he's been on a run. You know, Nathan for You is one of the greatest comedy shows of all time, followed by the rehearsal, which is equally, if not more, impressive. Followed by the Curse, which is maybe his most uh, impressive work yet. Um, very strange and uh, uncomfortable viewing. You know, the the curse was a partnership with Benny Safdie. We literally recommended yeah. it like two weeks go ago. Watch his, go watch it just, his other shows. It just ended though, and go the finale was was incredible. Yeah. yeah, I want I want to shout out his entire oeuvre, even his early stuff. Uh, this hour has twenty two minutes. Uh, show he did on Canadian TV. Really Shout good. out you Nathan can find Fielder. That on YouTube. Well, Shout this, out Canadians. This episode is almost over, so I'm gonna uh, give give my recommendation. Uh, lastly, I'm gonna recommend a cute little indie game I just came across that uh, has been uh, just has warmed my soul. Um, it's it's a very sweet, very short, simple game uh, with some really beautiful imagery in it called Assemble with Care. And I'd highly recommend it. Is it Canadian? Is it Canadian? Oh, I don't know. Boo! <laughs> if it's not Canadian, then boo! Yeah. You play a um, character who, who goes from town to town repairing uh, old objects. And 
meet while you do so you meet people and you help repair their relationships as well that sounds and cozy it's incredibly cozy and the music is great the art style is great um it's all kind of painterly and can you repair and David Cronenberg's relationship with his first wife? I don't. I don't think uh, anyone. I don't could. think there's any fixing <laughs> that. But um, no, I, I and and the the actual mechanics of like repairing the little objects, it feels kind of like Lego, and it's just it's very, it's just kind of perfect all the way around. I would yeah, I would highly recommend Assemble with Care. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and until next time, uh, don't have kids. Oh, yeah.